Welcome to the Devin Nunes Podcast. Breaking through the political noise. Separating fact from fiction. Stay up to date by following Devin on Rumble.com to watch the podcast or downloading wherever you listen to podcasts. From the San Joaquin Valley, the breadbasket of the solar system, here's your host, Devin Nunes. Devin Nunes, welcome back to the Devin Nunes Podcast. Uh, Jerry Hendricks, retired Navy captain. And Jerry, I think it's important. Taiwan's in the news. China has long wanted to take back over Taiwan. Used to be the, the old, the original Chinese government. Fled from there. Walk us through kind of that whole history. Uh, World War II, after World War II, communist takeover. Uh, and then the history of, of Taiwan, which I believe was called, I think was named Formosa one mm-hmm. time, right? Formosa was the name originally given to by the Portuguese yeah. um, back when they uh, sailed sailed to, to Asia. I think they were the first ones, as I, as I recall. Um, but let's talk about kind of give us the, just a quick history of the Chinese-Taiwan relationship and then where we stand now because the Chinese are doing a lot of saber rattling both with military exercises uh, and with soft economic power and spying and everything else. Well, first of all, I think it's important uh, to give, like you said, this brief history. First of all, Taiwan is not as close to China as a lot of people think. They kind of look on a map and they say, oh, geez, it's, it's kind of like England just off the coast of Europe. But it's not. Actually, it's four times the distance away from uh, China as England is from the French or the Belgian coast. So about 23 miles for England. It's 110 miles between the Chinese coast and, and Taiwan. That's why Taiwan, or Formosa, has long been in an independent country. Um, China actually only ruled Taiwan for a brief period of time from the late 1800s to the early 1900s, and then essentially it was taken away by the Japanese, and then the Japanese governed it for a long period of time until it regained its independence somewhat after World War II. Mm-hmm. And, and, and as you said, so the government of uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, was left. The, was, who was the ruler during yeah. World, before World War II, during World War II, and then fled. What, what year was that? About 1946, 47, as part of the Chinese uh, communist takeover. By Mao. By Mao. Uh, mm-hmm. Chiang Kai-shek and the Kuomintang KMG, KMT government left to go to Taiwan and set up uh, essentially a new and independent government, always with the intention at some point in time of going back to China that they would come back in. That was part of the ruling assumption of establishing the government on Taiwan. But now it's been essentially an independent country uh, for almost 70 years now. And in fact, is one of the largest uh, capitalistic as well as uh, democratic republics in Asia. And it's an interesting uh, and important example because it demonstrates that a Confucian-based society can incorporate the aspects of democracy into its day-to-day government and capitalism. So that's one of the reasons why the Chinese communists find it to be such a threat, is it demonstrates actually that capitalism and freedom can work within a Confucian-based economy. So you think that's the larger strategic strategic issue there? Is there anything that's secondary that has to deal with the, the, the old Shanghai Shek families, the old families, because a lot of them are from mainland yep. China, and they've relocated to Taiwan. A lot of them are doing business back in China. Is there anything there that, uh, you know, long-term uh, family dynasty issues that, that come into play? Absolutely. So, I mean, the, 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 the Guomindang still is a political party, although it's in the minority right now. And they have extremely strong ties uh, with communist China. There's a lot of business, as you say, that goes back and forth. That actually complicates our problems. 
the, the, the current government led by Shang Wen uh, actually is leaning more towards independence and the Declaration of Independence, which is what has caused a lot of tension in the region. Uh, that's what the Chinese cannot accept is if, if she actually declared independence. Uh, but that also, there's a lot of information that leaks out of Taiwan back into China, and that's a security concern for us mm -hmm. as to if we gave them, for instance, F-35s, how long would it be? What's the high probability of risk that that type of capability would be leaked back onto uh, the communist mainland? So this is some of the issues you have to face is that Taiwan itself still has a great deal of political division on it, but it's actually a vibrant democratic division where there's free elections and people get to uh, choose. Uh, but the key thing here is geostrategic. And so to move to that is that Taiwan, as part of the first island chain, is some of the most geostrategic important territory in the Western Pacific. That whoever holds that can exercise strategic control over uh, the East China Sea and the South China Sea, uh, allowing the Chinese fleets to come out, for instance. And so the Chinese look at Taiwan and they see that as long as they don't control that, they could be hemmed in in a time of war. Whereas if they control Taiwan, they have a free opening to the Western Pacific. I mean, kind of similar going back to World War II. We've had you on a couple of year, year or two ago, mm -hmm. and we discussed the Pacific theater and the whole strategy that the United States Navy or the United States military had to – using the, the Navy and, the, and, and Marines – and had to go in and, and basically island hop to cut all those islands off so that they could project force yeah. and slow down both moving oil and energy to Japan to basically cut Japan off. That's right, and it's, so it's kind of sit. So different era, different century, but but it's same still, old, same old geography. Yeah, same old geography. Geography never changes, and it drives the strategic conversation, which is why Xi Jinping is so focused on the recovery of Taiwan. Uh, at first, for a long time, I thought that there was a low probability of him trying to retake Taiwan soon because he has his Olympics coming up and he wanted to get past the good news inter international relations buzz that goes along with that. I'm no longer convinced of that. I think that he has bet so much of his personal prestige on this question of Taiwan that the threat of an invasion or a, an attempted takeover is much closer. And that's one of the reasons I've been trying to heighten sensitivities in our, in our national conversation about what we mm -hmm. should be doing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, uh, trying to strengthen it. And so I, I think that it's important that we have a, a strong conversation about that, about what we share with them, how much we invest in them, what type of weapon systems we give to them. Right. And we, we have always supplied their military with with current mm -hmm. uh, weapons, maybe not the most current, but but up to date. Um, yes. I mean, that's always been, been an issue. And, you know, obviously helping them uh, on the world stage, because remember, a lot of countries don't recognize Taiwan. And that's one of the things as a country, uh, even here in the United States, uh, they don't have an embassy. They have a – they call it something else. But it's uh, – yeah. so they're not really – It's more a, like a business concern than uh, than an embassy. Economic yeah. – uh, yeah. like an economic uh, station or yeah. something, yeah. And I, I, I've – Tecro. I've, I, Tecro, that's yeah. right. And I've been out there. So – and that's kind of all over the globe. And China has also slowly been going back the last few years using soft power to get countries that have recognized them to pull that back, that recognition. That's right. A lot of money spent in uh, along the Pacific Islands, even within Ameri states within the American Federation of States in the Western Pacific, where China's been spending trying to get them to unrecognize Taiwan and to recognize Chinese leadership. And, and it's been sort of a slow pickoff, point by point. Now that we recognize that threat, we've begun to push back 
against that. There was a lot of emphasis at the end of the Trump administration to try and recover some of those states and gain recognition back for Taiwan, which raises a question about the United States and its recognition of Taiwan going forward. Uh, you know, we had this little bit of confusion from President Biden in the last few days where he said on the CNN town hall last Thursday night that, yes, we would come to the aid of Taiwan. And then the very next day, the White House backs that or uh, backs up on that. And we, we need clarity. This is one of those areas where you really need clarity in order to deter China from taking an action. And, and I'm no longer in favor of what we call strategic ambiguity. I think we should be unambiguous about our support for Taiwan and that we will not see it uh, be invaded. Uh, but preventing that invasion is a challenge. Yeah, well, and you have Biden who uh, you know, hardly knows what's going on and his team has been, I think, strategic ambiguity is, is exactly right. There's no clear message being sent. All this saber-rattling, we should be very, very clear under no circumstances are you going to do this. Uh, that's not happening, which is then leading, well, does Xi take advantage of a White House that's in complete disarray with nobody really in charge, a split Congress, you know, meaning or not a split, but a, mm -hmm. a close Congress. Democrats control House and Senate, but with narrow, narrow margins. So, you know, how China is looking at that, do they see us as, as a vulnerable point that they strike now? My guess, those are the things that they're thinking about. Now, from my perspective, this is my personal perspective, I think they'd be absolutely nuts to do that. Uh, because, you know, I think it would do uh, – there would be a huge world backlash. I think, uh, you know, then it would basically speed up what, what is already happening, which is we understand here in the United States now, especially through this pandemic, without getting answers to the, the origins of the coronavirus from Wuhan, uh, the, the problems with the shipping that we've, that we've talked about, uh, the stilling of the property, the hypersonic missiles, all the things that they're doing, I think that would be basically a, a, a breaking point at least for Republicans who would say, okay, this is now a real existential threat that's not off in the distance somewhere, but it's, it's here and it's now, and we've got to do everything to bring industry back to here or at least to our, our allies. And I think that would speed up with our allies in the UK and everywhere else because China by itself, look, it's almost inevitable with one over a billion people that, that they mm -hmm. should be able to get their, their economy is going to be larger than ours at, at some point. But together with our allies, it won't be larger. And I think that's really the key is building those strategic allies with India and Europe and everywhere and you know, keeping our, our long-term allies. Let me address two things that you just raised. One is uh, we mustn't forget the damage to our international credibility that we just took with the disastrous withdrawal, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, that raised questions about the level of American commitment throughout the world. So this wasn't just that we kind of messed up in Afghanistan and our, uh, and our, our reputation is damaged in Central Asia. Mm -hmm. You know, credibility is, is, not, is not fungible uh, or is uh, it, it essentially that spread to our credibility everywhere. So Taiwan has questions about us now. Japan has questions about us. Great Britain has questions about us. The French. All, everyone now looks at the way that we handle that, and they have a, a, a real question as to whether the United mm -hmm. States will be there when it makes a commitment. And so we, we can't underestimate that. Xi Jinping is intimately aware of how incredibly ignorant we were in the way that we handled the, that withdrawal. The way that I've uh, described this is it's all fun and games. And my podcast, people listen to my podcast regularly know this, but it's all fun and games when you control the media, very similar uh, in the United States, like it is in the Chinese Communist Party controls the media. Here in the United States, the media is controlled by the Democratic Party, at least 95%. 
And then, of course, there's the censoring by the big tech companies that creates a nice little bubble mm-hmm. that they get to move around in because they can essentially play Baghdad Bob every day. You know, yeah. oh, this is not really what you see. There's no Al Qaeda. Uh, the Taliban aren't going to take over. Um, there's nothing really happening in China. There's no no shipping issue. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, transportation, sec- uh, transportation secretary, goes on paternity leave yep. for two months. Oh, there's nothing to see here. You know, everything is perfectly fine. Well, it's not. They can't hide from reality is sitting in on these issues. Inflation, ships backing up. But I think more importantly, Xi Jinping and Putin know everything about propaganda machines. Yes. And they're not buying any of this. They're laughing about how they're, they're you know, at some point your propaganda has to meet what you will actually do, right? But this yeah. is where the emperor has no clothes. So, or in this case, the emperor has no mind. So or no clairvoyance of, of, of thought with, uh, with what you see with Biden and, and the Harris administration. So the, the key thing here is what can we do for Taiwan now? And this comes down to military. And so I'll just really be very brief. You know, when we invaded Normandy, it wasn't a one-day invasion. It was a 28-day invasion. Until we could secure Cherbourg, we had to make sure that we were landing men and materials and supplies every day on that beach. What can we do for Taiwan is to allow Taiwan to begin sinking and interrupting the Chinese logistics flow all through that essentially 14 to 28 days it would take for the Chinese to capture Taiwan. That means missiles. That means mines. These are the types of systems, not just the F-16s that we've been selling them and some of the ships that we sold in the past, but the type of systems that would allow them to stave off a Chinese invasion long enough for the United States and its other allies and partners in the region to come to Taiwan's aid. And so it's all about sinking the ship on day one to interrupt what that ship was supposed to be doing on day three, five, seven, and on down the road. And, and if, if the Chinese get hit in the nose on the first day, they're going to pull back because they realize that their long-term invasion plan will fail. So we need to get those first-day defense systems in there that buy us the time for the U.S. to come to their aid. Because the U.S. Navy is not large enough right now to respond instantly. It's going to take us a few days, a few weeks maybe, to get our act together to be able to come and respond to Taiwan. Yeah, and, th- and this is why I think it would be so crazy. They haven't thought through the – if they were to do this, there's the second and third and fourth effects mm-hmm. down the road. I mean what are they going to do? Destroy every police station in, in, in Taiwan? I mean they're going to have massive, take, you know, massive casualties inflicted on the, on the Taiwanese people. Uh, I just – Think it would be completely crazy, but look, we can't rule it out. We have to think about Absolutely. it. We have, to, and that's and that's what we're doing here, and, and what what we're talking to because you uh, to our audience about because you have these examples. You had Macau controlled by the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last territory was given back. You had Hong Kong given back by the UK. And what happened? We were given promises. Oh no, no, they're going to be autonomous. They're going to be autonomous. And then now, look, I mean, now you basically have the full takeover of both Macau and uh, and Hong Kong. That would probably be the 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 smarter route for the Chinese to take. But we never know. Well, one China, two systems is a complete lie. It's been it's been revealed as a bare-faced lie mm-hmm. in Hong Kong and in Macau and, and quite frankly, in Tibet and uh, all these different places. Where the Chinese come, they rule as an authoritarian police power. And if you have any sense that you're going to maintain some sense of personal liberty or freedom, that goes away. And we know that by looking at our friends in Hong Kong right now. Captain Jerry Hendricks, retired uh, Navy aviator and author and truck driver (laughs) and a great historian and a great thinker and uh, we appreciate you coming on thank you it's devin nunes we'll catch you next time stay up to date by following devin nunes on rumble.com to watch the podcast or download wherever you listen to podcasts storm clouds been gathering so long i don't know the darkness around us leaves no easy road we
Paid for by Devin Nunes Campaign Committee.